0: Dr. Robert Baer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a real honor to be able to speak to you and to your audience. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You're the vice president, and you're also a founder of the Spiritual Awakenings International. Can you tell us about this organization and how you come to be one of the founders? I was on the board of directors for another organization with Dr. Yvonne Kason, and uh, we, we were on there uh, for a little over uh, six months or so, and I had kind of like a download, and we were talking one day on the telephone, and I told her, I said, Yvonne, I think we're supposed to be doing something else, and um, she said, what do you mean? And I said, I think we're supposed to start another organization. A couple days later she had another she had a download she's also an experiencer like i am with near-death experiences and we talked on the phone and she got the same download uh, but she was given a name spiritual awakenings international so we talked for a little while and at my age I know that if I'm going to do something, I should probably do it sooner than later because I'm in my seventies. So I I told her, I said, I think I'm going to uh, go ahead and uh, start the organization and why don't you join me? Uh, She did. We both quit the other organization we were affiliated with. She was president and I was vice president. And we had another lady named Linda Truax, who was the secretary, and she resigned around the same time. Actually, she termed limited doubt, uh, and the three of us uh, went ahead and structured Spiritual Awakenings International, and it has been a phenomenal success. We're in 77 c- countries uh, in just a couple of years. And... Uh, we offer programs both in English and Espanol, and um, I think we're going to expand that very shortly, too, to include other languages. But it's it's remarkable. We formed the group as experiencers for experiencers. And some of the presentations we have are just, they're just tremendous. Our sharing circles are tremendous. And I do say this uh, occasionally, but there was a time probably people who talked the way I talk, or maybe some of the other people affiliated with, with Spiritual Awakenings International, they probably would have burned us to the stake, on the stake, and, uh, at some point in time. But we're, we're gathering people from all over the world, and it's really, it's been a phenomenal success. I just want to touch on, you mentioned uh, both you and Yvonne having these downloads. Can you explain what that means? By saying that we had, a, or at least I'll speak to myself, having a download, uh, I get these thoughts uh, put in my head and uh, I've learned to act on them. And this has been something that's happened to me quite frequently since I uh had my near-death experiences where I passed away and, and was revived and came back to life and I've learned to pay attention to them and um, that's how Spiritual Awakenings International was founded and um, it's really uh, we, we talk a lot about uh, what happens in meditation, what what we uh, hear in meditation and and uh, ex- we share it with one another, especially at the beginning, and we've just followed our instincts I guess on that note Robert how how did you experience your you had more than one right your near death experiences? Can you walk us through both of them and what happened? First of all, I'd like to tell the audience that I was a policeman for 23 years and uh, very rigid, very black and white. Um, I retired from that and became, um, I did a variety of things. I was a professor at a university. Um, I was an international business consultant. I was a city manager. I was a tribal administrator for for a Native American nation. And every position I had had a lot of power. And I'm going to occasionally talk about that and how it affected me with my near-death experience because it's very relevant. And I think it's something that your audience may have an interest in. But I was... uh, I was at home in 2008 and a friend of mine, a police friend of mine called from the 1960s. We had worked together. And you know, you got a good friend when you pick up the phone and you may not have talked to this person for six months or a year, but the conversation goes back and it flows really well. You know that you got something special. And we were talking and he just stopped all of a sudden, and he goes, Robert, I have to ask you a question. And I said, well, what is it? And he goes, I'd like to know if you're right with the Lord. And I said, why are you asking me that? He says, I just, I feel like I'm compelled to ask you. And I said, well, I think so. And so we didn't talk about it anymore. Um A short time later, my mother had passed away in 2005, and this was in 2008. I woke up in the middle of the night, and there was my mother at the foot of my bed. And she looked beautiful, just like she did when I was a little boy, all in white. And, I mean, I don't know how she spoke to me. It might have been telepathically. But she told me that I was going to die and to get my affairs in order. And I was so upset of myself because she disappeared. I was so upset at myself because I thought, why didn't I tell her that I loved her? It just, it was so overwhelming. And I was in a pool of sweat. I thought it was a dream, but it wasn't a dream. I couldn't sleep. Actually, I couldn't sleep for a couple of days. Um, it affected me that much. And I called my father and told him about it. Uh, my father was still alive at the time. And, and of course, he wanted to know, if she asked about him. And I said, no, but I said, she looked beautiful. Just absolutely beautiful. Well, a little bit of time uh, passed, and I had had a, a full physical where you have the treadmill and you have the... Um, Uh, Urine tests and blood tests and all the other stuff. And I passed the flying colors. So, but in the back of my mind, that event, seeing my mother, was always kind of on my mind. And when I got the clean bill of health, I kind of put it aside. But then my friend that had called me on the phone, my police friend, he passed away. He died. And it was a shock to me. I drove down to California where I live in Oregon, by the way. I drove down to California and took part in his services and I did part of the eulogy and uh, met with uh, It was nice. I saw a lot of my old friends and uh, the ones that are still left and uh, uh, his family. And and um, I never told anybody about what I would the telephone conversation we had, but I was getting ready to go to Arizona and my son is at the time was a high school football, baseball and basketball coach and he had a what's called a spring break and it was a time of year where the major league baseball teams were having spring training so I would always try and coordinate some time to go down there and spend time with him and my granddaughters take them to the ball games, and just have a good time. So it was getting close to that time, and at the foot of my bed one night, it was my friend that died that that had been on the telephone. And he looked like he did when we were young. And I thought, this couldn't be. But he talked to me also, and I don't know if it was by words or telepathically, but I understood what he was saying. And he told me that he was going to bring me through the light, and he would be there. And before I could see anything, he said, I have to go now. I am going to visit my grandkids down in Sacramento. He just disappeared. Well, the same thing happened where it was all eerie, and I mean, I was in a pool of sweat. Um, I didn't know what to think, but I made some follow-up phone calls, and I found out his grandchildren did live in Sacramento. I did not know that. Well, it came time to go to Arizona, and um, this was 2009, March in 2009. So I got on the plane, went to Arizona, spent a week with my son and his family. It was very hot there, and I'm from a coastal climate where it's uh, relatively cool, but it was close to 100 degrees during a portion of that week. It was really hot, and I was very uncomfortable, and I didn't think much of it other than it was the changing climate that was getting to me, plus I had passed my physical. I um, kind of put that in the back of my mind that, you know, I'm, I'm fine. So it came time to leave, and my son drove me to the airport, dropped me off. We said our goodbyes, and I started to feel really sick. And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it home to Oregon. I looked at this TSA line. It was just long, and I thought, how am I going to do this? But I John wayne it, I made it through the uh, TSA line, went off into one of the little markets they have uh, at the airport, bought some aspirins. It's a good thing I did, probably, and I took them. And I went down to the boarding area at the gate, and when it came time we were boarding the airplane, I was on the plane, I was actually putting stuff in the overhead bin. And I dropped dead of a massive, from a massive heart attack. And I don't remember anything about being on the plane after that. Fortunately, there were a couple of off-duty firemen who were from the Pacific Northwest that were on the plane, and a doctor, and um, they knew how to work a defibrillator and and other things. Give me CPR. What I gravitated into light. And it was just, it was it was absolutely beautiful. Um, someone or something was with me. I'd like to think it was my friend, because if he told me he would do something, he would do it. And um, I went up and I saw colors that don't exist on this earth. It was absolutely phenomenal. And everything was warm. And it was just like, nothing mattered it was all warm and it's like everybody's just the feeling is of love and and it's just peace but i ended up in a situation where i was in front of a higher power and it was so humbling for me it still bothers me to even talk about it after we have this talk here i probably won't sleep for a couple of days every time i have one of these interviews I'm going to show this happens but it was so humbling I could not look at the higher power but I was spoken to and I don't know if it was telepathically or how it was conveyed to me but I understood what was said and it the words were similar to what good have you done in your life and then I realized I was there were all types of uh, holes or I don't know how to explain it it's like an auditorium but it wasn't an auditorium Just all over the place and the next thing I know to my left I saw my whole life transpire before me it was a life review and it started from the time I was conceived until the time that I died and It was a very unusual experience because not only could I feel my emotions, but I could feel the emotions of the people that I interacted with. And when you have a lot of power like I had in my life, where you arrest people, uh, you uh, um, fired them if, if there was a personnel issue, or you graded their papers, and um, maybe they didn't pass because of your grade, or whatever. I mean, I saw all these things and all the interactions unfold. And it started seeing. It started with me seeing a picture or a or a scene of my mother and father. And my father was still alive when I was uh, resuscitated and and revived, and I was telling them about this, and I said, I saw a picture of you and mom, or I saw a, a scene of you and mom standing by an old Chevrolet, and I said, I know it's a Chevrolet. As a policeman, we pay attention to cars, especially the job that I had, and I said, he said, well, what color was it?" and I said it was black, and he said, "What did your mother have on And I told him he had a plaid skirt on and a, and a sweater and my father uh, left he went over uh, to another room and I could hear him going through a box and he came back with this picture and it was a picture of him and my mother in front of a chevrolet and I said, That's exactly what i saw he he said are you sure? And I said, yes, that's it. And he goes, that was one of the best days of your mother's life. I said, why is that? And he goes, that's the day she found out she was pregnant with you and we got married. I said, you're, I said, wait a minute. I said, are you telling me that you got married because she was pregnant with me? He goes, Oh, he said, my mother would never have said that. He goes, don't worry about it. If i just said that, she would have been so mad at me when she was alive. But he said, that's what happened. I said, okay. I was a love child then. He goes, yeah, you were. So anyways, um, to me, that proved that my life started at conception. But everything played out. Everything. I saw myself and I've, t- I've talked about this a few times. I saw myself as a four or five year old, I can't remember, Some- somewhere around that age. My family used to go, uh, we're, we're from the Santa Cruz, San Jose area of California. And we would go to San Jose on Saturday. My parents would do shopping. they go shopping every week. And um, I was in a store and I already knew how to play my parents. I knew if I asked my father for something, I'd probably get it. But if I asked my mother, it wasn't going to happen. That's just the way I grew up in an Irish Catholic household. And uh, so I saw some baseball cards and I asked my father if I could get those. And my mother happened to hear me ask. And she wanted to know what was going on. But my dad says, well, ask your ask your mother. Well, I knew that it wasn't going to happen. so. I said, can I have these baseball cards? And she goes, no. And I said, they're only a nickel. And she goes, no. So I stole the cards. And uh, I made it all the way home. I get in the bedroom, shut the door. I opened the baseball cards. They were in a wrapper, and there was a stick of hard chewing gum in them. And I just popped that in my mouth, and my mother opens the door, and she goes, Robert, what have you got there? And I mean, I lied. <laughs> I got in trouble. And she called my father and she says, this is unacceptable in our household. We're going back to the store and he owes that an apology, the, the store owner. So they loaded me up, took me back to the store. And my mother just kind of went overboard uh, saying, you know, he's this is unacceptable in our household. Put him." Call the police if you want, we don't care. Uh, And I could see the, I could read the mind of the store owner because my life review, you could, that's what happens. You You could read, you could understand all the perceptions of everybody. And he was trying to say, this is only a four or five year old kid. I'm not gonna call the police. So finally he said, why don't you just give me a nickel and we'll call it even. Well, my father gave him a nickel Loaded me back in the car. We went back to the house. And I was grounded for I don't know how long. But I was telling my father this. And he was laughing about it. He says, I remember that. And I said, well, I don't think it was funny. But (laughs) I said, you did your job as a parent. That had a profound effect on my life. What you did. What you and mom did. And I just saw all types of stuff happen. I mean, I saw, um, I was sitting on, a, on a, a side of the road with a friend of mine, and he threw a, win- a rock and went through a window of the neighbors. He took off and left, and I just stayed there, and a the neighbor came out, and she said, Robert, you did that. And I said, no, I didn't. And the more I denied it, the more she didn't believe me, took me to my folks, and I got disciplined for that. But when I saw that part of my life review, I heard a voice say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. That was that woman, I'm sure of it. Now, the people that were I was interacting with and involved with, possibly were part of the review they were able to say things that's what made it difficult. Um, I had a situation where um, there was a young lady that liked me and um, the only time I would go out on a date with her is when I had to double date because my sister was Ten months younger than me, my dad was an Irish twin, and uh, if she were to go out, I, it had to be a double date, and I had to be in the back seat and she had to be in the front. Seat. They had their rules. That's fine. So um, this lady was, this young lady was really a, a, a really a nice person, and um, she came over to see me, and I was working on my car. I was a teenager. And she goes, oh, can you take me to a dance tonight at the Coconut Grove? And I said, well, my friends and I want to go cruising down on Beach Street. And she goes, well, I'd like to go there. And and uh, you know, and, and I said, well, no, I, I'm not going to go. And she goes, well, can I go cruising with you? And I said. We don't want any girls any girls with us. And so she got mad and stormed off. And then she came back later on with a letter. It was sealed in an envelope with my name on it. And she threw it at me. That night, she went with some other friends, and they got in a crash. And she died in the crash. And when it got to that point of my life review, I actually heard a voice say, "You never opened my letter. I never did. I already knew what was in there." It was a really a sad time, uh, not only in her family's life, but my life to a certain extent too, and also all of our friends, because she wasn't the only one that died in the crash. There were four that died in the crash. When I graduated from the Academy, I was a California Highway Patrol. I was a Santa Cruz City policeman before that. Then I went to the California Highway Patrol. They paid quite a bit more money at the time. So I went to that organization, graduated from the Academy, and they sent me down To the South Los Angeles, the Watts area, right after the riots. And it was a war zone, it really was. It was just, the tension was just unbelievable between the police and the people that lived in that community or the people that came in and agitated things. And um, it was just unbelievable. And when you had blonde, I had white hair. Blonde hair and blue eyes—you uh, kind of stood out down in that area. And um, one night, I was working with another uh, another patrolman, and we made a stop of somebody that uh, we we thought was a DUI. He pulled into an alley, and when sometimes in the projects, when you're there during that time period. You'd be out making a, a stop or whatever, and you could you look up and you would see rifles pointing at you. Uh, it was very intimidating. And one night we made the stop, and I heard some gunshots go off. In fact, my partner and I both heard the gunshots go off. And even the violator he goes, "Well, somebody's shooting." I thought they were shooting at us. Well, lo and behold, um, I saw this guy running towards us with a a rifle. And I yelled for him to halt. He didn't stop. He kept coming. And I probably could have drew down on him, but my instinct told me not to do it. And he came up and he told us that he had just been robbed. And he had fired a warning shot. And when I saw this part of my life review, I heard a voice say, "Thank you for not shooting me." I think it was that person. So all my all my career unfolded, all my home life, going to school. it took me... 10 years to get my bachelor's degree because I I worked full time. And I had a a family. And um, I would take three units here or six units there. And and, I finally got through it. Then I went on to graduate school and just kept going. But and got promoted. Was shipped in different locations of the state. I was in East LA. San Francisco twice, Oakland twice, uh, Santa Cruz twice, my hometown. Just a variety of things happened, and um, I I grew going up in the area I did. Um, I had some really good friends that um, we all became policemen together. Fact, they're probably the reason I became one. And uh, there was a shooting in uh, 1983 where uh, I was the second unit that responded to it. And my friend worked for another sheriff's department, for the sheriff's department. And he had been shot And myself and, and uh, another officer had been shot also. So myself and another guy, we chased the, su- the suspect. But I remember looking at my... Friend that I'd known since we were we were real young, and his father was a fireman and responded there, and I saw his dad holding him, really sad, and it was just something that uh, I didn't want to see again, but it's part of my life, and I was telling my father about it. He got my father got emotional too because uh, he knew the. Uh, he knew everybody, and um, so all these things played out. Um, I don't want to bore you with or your audience with police stories, but I'll just I'll just tell one more because this has a human aspect to it. Working, a, I was working one night, and I got called to, to the scene of an accident, a fatal accident. Um, Was up in the up in the mountain area, and um, car had gone over the bank, hit a tree, and burst into flames. And um, so I got called up. I was a shift supervisor at the time, so I went up, started taking pictures, and I noticed the guy was, the deceased person was laying across the seat with his hands across his chest, and I I guys, I said, have you ever seen anybody uh, in a burn situation lay like that? Usually, they get in a fetal position. We were talking about that, and um, so I called the sh- I called the sheriff's department. And they responded up there, and I said, I wonder, this might be a a crime up here and not a traffic accident. And they said, no, it's a traffic accident. So I said, OK, we'll take it. So we took it. And um, that night, um, the coroner was there. And when we were talking about contacting the next in. so I said, I'll do it. Didn't want to do it, but I said, I'll do it. So um, I drove to the house where This person that lived, the deceased person that lived, or at least what we thought he he had lived. And as I drove up the driveway, I saw the lights come on in the house. And I got out of my patrol car, and as I started to walk up, I heard a woman scream. And um, I got to the door, and she didn't want to open the door, and I said, I need to talk to you, you Finally, she opened the door, and she said, you're gonna tell me that my son died. I said, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I said, is there anybody here that uh, could be with you or help you out? And um, I, I need to talk to you. And she just broke down, and I held her and um, um, got her to sit down and told her what had happened. And made arrangements for her to get uh, to where her son's body was, and and uh, contacted some other uh, persons to help her. But when I saw that part of my life review, I heard a voice say, thank you for what you did. And my mother really got to me. And um, by the way, they did an autopsy on the uh, person. There were bullet slugs in his chest. So it ended up being a homicide. When you see and interact with people in your life review and you know what's, you know what they're thinking and, and you know uh, what transpired. If you've ever been in a situation where you've been married and you go through a divorce, uh, some of them are pretty nasty. And uh, I was in one of those. And um, I actually saw... Like betrayal. But betrayal wasn't just between a man and a wife. I also saw betrayal in the workplace. Uh, people that I thought I knew that were my friends, uh, they would say things behind your back. and There's nothing but truth where I was. Nothing but truth. That's all I'm going to say. Nothing but the truth and I had a really hard time dealing with um, betrayal when I was revived. But I have a situation where my daughter um, had a cancer situation and she had to go uh, to have some surgery and I hadn't seen her mother for years. And uh, we both showed up at the hospital uh, to be in the waiting room while the surgery was taking place. And and this was after I had my near-death experience. And we were sitting in the room, and finally I said, you know something? Our daughter may not survive this. And If she does, it's going to take both of us to help her. So why don't we just get about the past and just be there for her? And we made an agreement to do that. I said, there's one thing I have to ask you, though, if you don't mind. And I said, you don't have to answer it if you don't mind. I told her about what I've seen in my life review about the betrayal part. She admitted to it. Everything I saw happened. And around this time, I felt something fidgeting off to the right. I'd been focused in on the left, because that's where my life review was, was going off. But over on the right, something was fidgeting. And I had a dog named Scooter that died in 2001. And we were really close. He was a absolutely a phenomenal animal. She was a border collie, a great beach dog. Uh, You know, she would get frisbees and stuff like that. Just a great friend. And she liked to go just about everywhere with me. I looked over to the right and there she was. She couldn't come to me. But boy, she was so happy. And I'm going to be very honest. Growing up the way I did and the way that I believed, I in no way ever thought, number one, there would be actually be consequences for my actions, and number two, the animals were part of the afterlife. It was so good to see her. Absolutely phenomenal. So... I was taken to a hospital, and there was a doctor from Pakistan that worked on me. And um, he wouldn't let me die. I was revived. I'd been deceased for probably about 45 minutes total from the time I was in the airplane and taken on the ambulance to the hospital. He revived me, and then a short time later I died I died again. This time I had a different experience. This time I was hovering above the bed in the hospital, watching them work on me, and it was I was watching everybody panic and I, I actually saw the flat line. I saw it. But in another part of the hospital, my belongings had come in on the ambulance and they were going through my stuff to find out who the hell I was. I stopped paying attention to myself in the, in the uh, emergency room. And I was watching them go through my stuff and they were looking for my insurance cards. Uh, policemen, a lot of policemen, Every two wallets one has your regular stuff in it the other like your social security card and stuff like that the other has your badge and identification and I'd stuck my insurance card in my police wallet it was in a special place and um, they were going through my stuff and I was trying to tell them where it was and then I realized they can't hear me I must be dead. So finally, somebody opens up my wallet, my police wallet, and there's my cards in there. And they said, this guy's a retired police. And around this time, I got revived again. So I was back in the emergency room and they they had worked on me and I was breathing again and had a heartbeat. I ended up in intensive care for a long time. I had all these machines hooked up to me. I mean, it was just, it it was not fun. And I I was telling the doctor about, well, he wanted to know if I remembered what I remembered. I told him a little bit, but I did tell him about uh, being in the hospital and watching the people going through my, my belongings. He goes, uh, wait a minute. Well, he went down and he found the people that were actually there when I came in. Brought them to my room. And he said, you tell them what you told me. And I told them, and they said, that's exactly what happened. Word for word. I'm saying this for a reason. There, you'll hear testimony for of people who talk about different types of near-death experiences. For example, hovering over your bed in in, in an emergency room, like I did my second time, or the life review. It it could be some other type of experience. They're all near-death experiences. I don't know the significance, why some happen or why why some don't. But I look at this opportunity to talk to your audience and it's up to them whether they wanna believe me or not. I, quite frankly, I've passed that point, I really care. Um, I know what I saw, I know what I experienced. And I look at this situation and those of other people that have spoken where it's, it's no different than if you were like Marco Polo Christopher Columbus or Mark Twain. No videos, no photographs, none of that where I was. And our society is so geared on, especially now with uh, videos, even on cell phones and, and pictures, recording things. Myself or other people that talk about this, we don't have those but neither did Mark Twain, neither did Christopher Columbus, neither did Marco Polo. They went and they reported what they saw. And that's exactly what I'm doing here. I was revived. And I now have had 5,088 additional days of life. I get up every morning. I'm, I'm amazed. At, I have another day. I live I live on a beach I, um, I live every day like it's my last day and uh, I hope this will help some people that are hearing this because what you do in your life matters. I'm convinced of it and i've I've gone back and I've had to I've felt compelled to apologize to some people for my behavior. Um, I don't know if that's going to make a difference, but for me it does. For them, it's just some of them don't even remember what happened. But I, I saw it, and I tuned into it. And my memory about that is so vivid. It just um, It's just something I've, I felt compelled to do. And I don't ever want to be the boss again, ever. I won't. I started to write grants and um, Mm -hmm. do things to help organizations like uh, for homeless shelters and uh, disabled veterans, uh, things like that. Um, I still work. But I do, I choose to do that. No more police work. No more managers. Um, I just try to uh, stay out of the limelight and uh, enjoy what time I have left. Robert Baer, thank you so much. Thank you. Watch new episodes every Saturday on NTD Television at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and on Epic TV at 9.15 p.m.